If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. <laughs> Hello and welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine, Britain's best-selling history magazine. I'm Ellie Cawthorn. For 30 years, between 1917 and 1947, women in India campaigned for the vote. The University of Bristol historian Samita Mukherjee has spent much of her career on these Indian suffragettes and how their fight for the vote connected both to India's wider struggle for independence and women's suffrage movements across the world. I spoke to her to find out more. Thank you so much for joining me today in our studio um, to talk to me about your research into Indian suffragettes. So for Our listeners who might be entirely new to this topic, could you give us a very, very brief introduction to the story of women's suffrage in India? Uh, Sure, and thanks for having me. Um, So the Indian suffrage movement, or the movement for female vote in India, started in 1917, um, and it ran all the way until Indian independence in 1947. Um, It was a national movement, a movement that spanned across the whole of uh, British India. So India was a colony of the British Empire at this time, and was until 1947, when it was partitioned to 
India and East and West Pakistan. So it was in, only in 1919 that a democratic assembly or kind of parliament was introduced in India. Um, and so it was only at that time that there could even be a movement for female suffrage. So at the very inception of a parliament in India, from the idea in 1917, there was a women's movement campaigning for the female vote. So what are some of the, the key milestones, the key moments in the story stretching from 1917 right up to 1947? Um, so the first milestone is 1917 itself, when a group of Indian women, led actually by an Irish woman, Margaret Cousins, who had been involved in the Irish suffrage movement but had now moved to India, um, decided to form a deputation to meet the Viceroy of India, which is like the Governor General of India, the kind of head of state of India at the time, to... Um, asked that women's votes be included in this new parliament. So in 1917, this idea was introduced in India that a new parliament was going to be introduced um, and uh, it would be introduced two years later in 1919. Um, and at its very inception, um, and as the ideas of the parliament were being discussed, the Viceroy of India um, and also the Secretary of State for India, so the MP in charge of India in the UK and the cabinet minister from the UK, were interested in just talking to Indians to get a sense of how they should formulate this new parliament. But it was very clear from the beginning that there was no desire or interest or even idea of including women. It just wasn't on their radar that women would be included in this new parliament um, that would be introduced in India. So from 1917, a group of Indian women decided to preempt preempt these discussions and form a deputation to meet with these politicians to make sure that women and women the women's vote was on the agenda. Um, in 1919, a new parliament was introduced in India, but women's vote was not included. Um, so that's the kind of next milestone. So a new parliament was introduced in 1919 in India, um, and it was based on the federal system. So India is a very large country and, and was at the time, you know, it's about the size of continental Europe without Russia um, and has many states and provinces. So a central government was set up, but also each province had its own government as well. So representative assemblies were set up in the provinces, also a central government. A concession was made in 1919 that the local governments, the local provincial governments could have their own votes within their assemblies on the question of giving women the vote. Um, so in 1921, the first provinces of Bombay and Madras actually agreed to give women the vote in Bombay and Madras, which meant they also then had a vote nationally and had could partake in a national vote. And by 1935, all of the states of British India had given women the vote on those lines. The issue was, which is quite similar to the UK and the suffrage movement in the UK, that only women who owned property were given the vote at this time, which excluded the vast majority of women. In fact, in most provinces, only about 1% of women owned property. Um, and so this is why the suffrage movement had to continue as very vibrant across the 1920s, 30s and 40s until Indian independence um, and after Indian independence, when a new government was set up in India, um, women were included in the vote. So it's a very long and gradual story. Um, the women's suffrage movement across the world has always been about more than just literally getting the vote. It's about what that vote can give women. So in the Indian context, what kind of issues were women dealing with that they thought the vote might help with? Sure, yes. Um, uh, the vote is not just about... Um, 
kind of going to a polling station and just crossing your name on the on the list and, and voting for someone who represents you. It's it's an understanding of of how you are involved in political participation and how your political representative can influence things that affect you. So the things that were affecting Indian women, which affected women around the world and continue to affect them, were issues around education, um, around work, uh, around maternal welfare. Those were the the key things, Um, but especially... And also up until 1947, just the uh, key issue that affected women and men in India was a desire to have independence. Mm -hmm. I wanted to ask you about that and how the fight for for women's suffrage connected to the fight to end colonialism. Yeah, it's really connected um, in multiple ways. So as I was saying before, it's India wasn't independent until 1947. So Indian women were campaigning for a vote in a representative parliament from 1917 but it was this really weird paradox because they weren't totally independent so they could have a vote but they were still very limited in what that vote actually meant so indians were voting from 1919 and had their own parliament but so many things were still controlled by the british crown and parliament in the uk and house of commons especially issues around foreign policy um, and issues around some of the taxes so in demanding the vote, in demanding a right to political participation, naturally, pe- women who involved in the suffrage movement saw that the next step had to be independence from the British Crown to be to have a, a true, true position as an equal citizen in your nation. You have to have an independent nation. So that it was intimately connected the vote for suffrage and the vote for Indian independence. What also happens is that especially as the 1920s and 30s progress um, as as decades, the Indian nationalist movement, which was dominated by men, are increasingly um, aware of the need to bring women on side and that the, um, the idea of full adult suffrage is something that should be the, the ideal of a new independent nation. Um, so... The concessions made by Indian nationalists, including Mahatma Gandhi, the, one of the key figures in the Indian movement uh, by the 1930s, that if India gains independence, they assure women that women will get the vote. Mm. So in many ways, this, the women's suffrage movement is can take a back seat if it wants to, but it doesn't because there's still so many limitations to to the vote. There's so many demands that the Indian women's movement bro- more broadly isn't involved in. Um, and there's so many ways in which they they see that they have to kind of continue to to make sure that women are on the agenda, both on the in the kind of imperial negotiations, but also on the nationalist side. So offering women the vote is a way of winning them over to the to the nationalist cause. Yeah. Um, something that's really interesting to me is the fact that India was under British rule, as you say, until 1947, but. Indian women weren't granted the same privileges as British women in terms of the vote. Is that correct? Yes. So Indian women were only granted the vote if they owned property in their own right. And so they had to have it property in their own name. Um, And this is very restrictive. This is the same for Indian men. Um, In India, this, as I was saying before, it meant in practice only about 1% of Indian women in many provinces were able to vote. This is because of inheritance laws in India, which actually in many places prevented women from inheriting property from 
their parents or their husbands. Um, and it, uh, there was a kind of a natural line of succession that property usually went to a male relative, which is very different from the British context in some ways, but also similar in the ways in which in 1918, when British women get the vote, not all British women get the vote. There are also restrictions in Britain based on age and on residency qualifications. Mm. It's interesting, this this tension between those two aspects, the, the question of imperialism and nationalism and the question of women's suffrage. Were there any connections between the British women's suffrage movement and the Indian women's suffrage movement? Yeah, there were loads of connections between the British women's suffrage movement and the Indian women's suffrage movement. Um, mainly and partly because India was this British colony. Um, so there were so many connections naturally between India and Britain. Lots of British women um, lived and worked in India, and there are lots of there's lots of movement between the Indian subcontinent and Britain. There was also a increasing recognition by British women who were involved in the suffrage movement after 1918 that they should support the Indian women in their own right for the vote, um, and the movement for suff female suffrage had always been from the early 20th century quite a global and international and connected movement. There were international organisations of women um, for suffrage. Um, and so there was, there was a, a long-standing legacy of women who were involved in suffrage in particular um, in connecting with other women around the world, um, encouraging and helping them in their, their right to vote. What other countries did um, Indian suffragettes form connections with? Um, so there was a European conference of suffrage, um, which met every three years from the early 20th century, and Indian women connected with, with that, so women from across mainly Western Europe. There were also strong connections with the American suffrage movement. Um, again, the American suffrage movement in itself was also very connected to the British suffrage movement and the European um, suffrage movement, so there were Indian women who were visiting... America itself um, and discussing the right to vote, but also American women um, sending letters and correspondence and and, and so forth um, to Indian women. Um, and there are also connections with the rest of the empire, um, which included Australia, New Zealand, um, Canada and South Africa, especially as Australia and New Zealand were one of the first countries to give women the vote in the, the world itself. Um, so they were, women in, in Australia and New Zealand in particular, were very prominent in some of these international connections of suffrage um, and so connected also to Indian women. Mm -hmm. And in those connections, was it deemed a partnership of equals, as it were? Was there a sense of equality between suffragettes from different nations? Or did ideas about race um, from the time play a role in how those connections played out, those relationships? Unfortunately, race was a big issue um, in the suffrage movement um, and something that really hindered some of these connections. So even in Australia, for example, where women got the vote early on, uh, women were excluded on account of race or um, if they were migrants. So there were actually a few, you know, a very small handful of Indian women, for example, who lived in Australia who were excluded from the vote um, until the late 20th century. But what we see is that the suffrage, the kind of the international global movement for suffrage and these organisations and conferences and women who are uh, connecting with other suffrage movements around the world was dominated very much by white women. Um, 
especially, of course, in Britain. Um, and there was very much a sense by very many of these white women that they had a right to get the vote first before other women of colour. Um, you see this in the American suffrage movement as well, that there are divisions on the basis of race. Um, the African-American women are excluded from many of the debates and discussions around uh, the right, right to vote for women. And it's not just a kind of um, exclusion of women of colour from these discussions or a kind of idea that they should come next, but also um, often a hostility and animosity towards women of colour getting the vote. Um, so, for example, we have examples of women in, in the American suffrage movement who say, I don't want a black person to have the vote before me. Um, it, it's not right and the right thing. In the same vein, you have, uh, for example, Christabel Pankhurst, uh, a prominent British suffrage uh, campaigner who is very concerned when she sees that there are developments in Turkey in the early 20th century, which put the the vote for Turkish women on the horizon before British women. Um, and she kind of argues that this should not be happening because she's she has this sense, and you get this sense across a, a large proportion of the British suffrage movement that British women, white women, are the inheritors to this long tradition of democracy and liberty in, in a UK parliamentary tradition, and that they understand the votes and political participation in a better way than other women around the world, even though they don't have the vote. Um, and you, so you also get that in their relationship with Indian women. Although there is some support for Indian women to get the vote, and I I've discussed the ways in there, which there were some connections and and support and and dialogues and so forth. There were also often concerns about giving Indian women the vote too soon, as they as many British suffrage campaigners put it. Um, concerns that they stereotypes about Indian women as being illiterate, as being um, perded, so having a veil and, and over them, which is you know an Islamic tradition, or being secluded and just not being educated enough or culturally kind of appropriate enough to engage in a, a kind of democratic parliamentary tradition in the same ways in which uh, Western women kind of saw themselves as inheritors to. Something that you, you talk about in your research is the idea of what you call imperial feminism. Can you explain what you mean by that? Yeah, and this is actually a term that was coined by a um, historian called Antoinette Burton. Uh, it's something that I've uh, run with as well. Um, so it's this idea and sense and, and kind of practicality of British women who are involved in, uh, you know, kind of this first wave feminist movement, as it's called. The first wave feminism is the movement for uh, political rights, who see themselves as campaigners for equal rights for women. Um, and so are very much, um, you know, see themselves as, as kind of equality campaigners. And yet they don't see and don't recognise that they don't also demand equality for women of colour. So if I go back a little bit, so British women who were demanding the vote in the UK, especially in the 1910s when the suffrage movement in the UK, you know, it's a very vibrant movement until, up until 1918, um, were very aware that if British women got the vote, 
they'll be able to vote an MP into the House of Commons in in Westminster. Um, And their MP would have a say not only over their local constituency and national matters such as taxes and so forth in the UK, but also had a a vote and a say over what was happening in the rest of the British Empire. They were also voting on and discussing matters of foreign policy um, and taxes and so forth in in India and other parts of of, the wide-ranging British Empire. And British women, when they were campaigning for the vote, were very aware of, of the the power of their vote and the, the kind of scope of their vote um, and wanted that. They wanted to prove that they um, could have a say over empire as well. And they would often kind of make claims and discuss the ways in which they were very ready to be involved more in the British empire, to have much more of a say themselves over how... Um, reform movements and and taxes and everything else that was involved in the British Empire should be kind of construed and and continued. And there was therefore almost almost no one or very little of of the suffrage movement who were thinking about ending the empire. They were imperialists. So they're imperialists, but they're also feminists, which leads to the term imperial feminism. It's a very complex picture, isn't it? I also wanted to ask you about pan-Asian connections. Uh, What can you tell us about those? So Indian women were connecting with the US, with Western Europe, uh, the other parts of the British Empire, but also other parts of Asia. So Indian women had really needed the support and help of British women in their campaigns, especially in the from 1917 and the early demands they made to the British Parliament and the Viceroy to get the women's vote on the agenda um, for for the new Indian parliaments. But Indian women increasingly became aware, cognizant of the kind of racial and imperial undertones of the relationship with British women. They felt that British women were confining them and constraining the Indian women's suffrage movement. So, for example... Um, as we've discussed, Indian women only had the vote on the basis of property. So Indian women were very active in demanding that this restriction should be removed and that Indian women should just get the vote just as as men, just as if you're an adult. But there were British women who didn't agree with that and said, you shouldn't be demanding full adult suffrage, just leave it as it is. So... Um, as India is based in Asia, they started to look to their neighbours more um, for solidarity, for um, a greater connections with with women across China, Japan, um, other parts of Asia to get more support from them and to um, try and build new allegiances that way. Still to come on the History Extra podcast. Although there were kind of two fronts for the Indian women's suffrage movement, kind of fighting against the Indian patriarchy, the the kind of major fight became a fight against imperialism and the imperial government and getting women to have a vote in an imperial parliament first. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show 
by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. We've spoken a lot about um, the movement's international connections. So I might just um, focus us down now about the campaign within India itself. So um, what kind of activities did you get up to if you were involved in the Indian suffrage movement? Sure. So I should say that the Indian women's suffrage movement, as as the Indian women's movement itself in India, was dominated by middle-class and upper-class Indian women. These were women who uh, were often educated and also often had enough wealth to have the spare time to engage in um in the activities of the suffrage movement uh often they also had to be um also they, they were english speaking so that was a way which they could communicate across india so india has and had um multiple vernaculars um and english has often been the kind of easiest language for people in india to communicate across uh provinces so uh, the indian women's suffrage movement was dominated by um a, a quite elite set of women who would meet in their own provinces um and also meet nationally often uh, once a year for conferences where they would all travel and meet together where they would do um so a lot of campaigning in the early 20th century uh, for women and, and and other parts was very much about uh, writing mem- memorandums, writing letters, um, lobbying. So lobbying politicians, lobbying other people of influence, um, meeting with them to, to lobby them as well. Um, a lot of it then was kind of uh, letter writing writing. Uh, and, and talking, uh, letter writing also in periodicals and journals um, and newspapers to get their their voice heard, to get their demands heard. So there weren't um, very many rallies. There weren't very many marches. There weren't any kind of hunger strikes or um, chaining oneself to rails. And then the kind of things that many of us in you know the UK where I'm based are very aware of as you know, being part of the kind of British suffrage movement, it was a much more um, moderate uh, movement of um, of lobbying um, and so forth. So, so you mentioned there um, language barriers. Obviously, that the Indian subcontinent was such a vast place, but did regional identity, regional culture, and all religious um, divides play any role in in the movement? So, the Indian women's movement is quite different from the Indian nationalist movement in in not being divided by religion. So for any listeners who are aware of some of the history of Indian nationalism, they might be aware that the Indian nationalist movement soon became beset by uh, religious separatism. You know, it's kind of a feature of the partition of India into India and East and West Pakistan. Um, And the the votes that were introduced in India in 1919 for this new parliament were divided along religious lines for men. So you had, in some places, some votes. So, for example, Muslims could only vote for a Muslim representative, a Christian could only vote for a Christian representative, and so forth. But from its very inception, um, the Indian women's suffrage movement was very clear that they didn't want religion to come into their constituency. They wanted to be seen as a constituency of women 
rather than be divided along religious or or any other lines. So um, remarkably, um, if you kind of think about the, the the history and the political situation across the subcontinent, the religion managed to be kept out of a lot of the Indian women's suffrage movement. That's not to say, of course, there were certain examples and individuals. As in, in any case, that you know, you can always find some some divisions, but largely religion was kept out of the women's movement. And and in the British context, we know that a lot of suffragettes were were punished essentially for their involvement in the campaign, either by family or neighbours. For example, it was often deemed shameful, and people were shunned for being involved. Was that also the case in the Indian context? Not at all. Um, I think it's partly because the movement was dominated by middle class and upper class women. Um, who generally came from backgrounds which had encouraged them to become involved in political participation and had given them this kind of freedoms um, to be educated um, and to engage in, um, as I said, in political associations and organisations. So I haven't come across any examples of anyone, of any of the women involved in the movement being um, shunned by their family members. Um, no, that's really that's a really interesting difference. Was there much opposition? How vociferous was that opposition? Yes, there was, of course, opposition, um, but from Indian men uh, against the Indian women who've come in for the vote. I wouldn't want to paint the picture that um, India was or is um, a kind of model of uh, gender equality in its own society, um, and it, you know it wasn't and is continues to be beset by so many um issues around um gender inequality um i guess the indian women suffrage the indian suffrage movement had some advantages in that it was vibrant at a time <laughs> it's a horrible thing to say, kind of having an advantage at a time when the empire was in place. Because although there were kind of two fronts for the indian women's suffrage movement kind of fighting against the indian patriarchy the the kind of major fight became a fight against imperialism and the imperial government and getting women the women to have a vote in an imperial parliament first so that they didn't have to fight against indian men because indian men didn't have the right to exclude them it was british men who were excluding them and so although there were indian men who were very rude um about indian women um who were campaigning for the vote and there were there was opposition in so i mentioned before how local assemblies gave women the vote in stages from 1921 onwards of course there were Indians who voted against that, um, but they, but the Indian suffrage movement had had lobbied successfully enough to always make sure that they had a um, majority in those votes, and they knew they kind of did their numbers. They, you know, they kind of really did it, and they made sure they could turn uh, enough MPs around to to get the votes um, for them. Ultimately, the 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 biggest enemy became the British men, British imperialism, um, and that's who they had to fight. It's fascinating stuff. So they were really good at kind of exploiting the situation that they found themselves in. Yeah. Ah. So who who were some of the prominent figures of the movement? Uh, so one of the key figures in the Indian women's suffrage movement, but also a key figure in Indian nationalism, is a woman called Sarojini Naidu, who um, was a kind of right-hand woman to Mahatma Gandhi, 
as well at the time across the 20th century. So she was a woman who was born in Hyderabad in central southern India um, and had actually come to Cambridge University to study English literature at the end of the 20th century and was a published poet. Um, she was uh, a friend of W.B. Yeats um, and was very intimate in a, a non-sexual way um, with members of the British literary sets in the late 19th and early 20th century. But when she returned to India, she became very involved in the Indian nationalist movement and gave up her poetry, became very close to Gandhi, you know, who kind of became his private secretary and, and helped him a lot, but also became a vocal proponent of Indian suffrage and Indian women's rights more broadly. Um, so she is um, very well known in India still, t- you know, today. She's, you know, kind of one of the key figures of the nationalist movement um, and, yeah, also of the suffrage movement. Um, there were other women. There was uh, someone called Rajkumari Amrit Kaur, who was born into a princely family in Kapitala in India, who... Um, kind of, and we can talk about Sophia Dimpsing later, who kind of gave up some of her aristocratic privileges and became very involved in the women's movement. Um, She was a leading figure in the Women's Association, and she was actually the first health minister of independent India in 1947, uh, the first and only female cabinet minister of of India at the time. And what about Indian women who played a role in suffrage movements outside of India? So there were Indian women who lived in other parts of the world at the time. So Indian people have always been very global as a a diaspora. Um, And Indian women were actually quite involved in the UK uh, suffrage movement as well. So one of the most prominent women of Indian origin is someone called Princess Sophia Dilip Singh. Um, There's a biography written of her by the broadcaster Anita Anand. Um, And she... Uh, so she was born in Norfolk. Um, her father was a deposed prince of the Punjab. Her mother was a German Abyssinian, and she was an active campaigner for the women's vote in the UK. Tell us about some of the activities that she got up to, because she got up to some quite interesting publicity stunts, really, didn't yeah, she? Yeah, she's a great figure. Um, so she became a member of the Women's Tax Resistance League. And this was a group in the UK that argued that if women didn't have the vote, they shouldn't have to pay taxes, because women did have to pay taxes at the time. And they refused to pay their taxes. Um, and it's a feature of her aristocratic privilege, um, and also gives the real sense of what kind of taxes were paid um, at that time that she refused to pay the taxes for her servants um, for her carriage and you also had to pay dog licenses um, at this time um, so she refused to, to pay these taxes and what would happen and one of the purposes of the Women's Tax Resistance League and the purpose of, of not paying taxes was that they could gain huge publicity by um, so what would happen was that bailiffs would have to come to the house of anyone who refused to pay taxes to impound goods of the value of the taxes that had not been paid. And then there would be public auctions where the bailiffs would sell those goods to raise the money that 
for, for the taxes that hadn't been paid. So Sophia's refusal to pay taxes caused huge publicity because the bailiffs would um, impound uh, diamond rings and kind of jewellery and because they were the kind of things that she had in her property. Um, and there would be these um, huge auctions which the Women's Tax Resistance League would publicise themselves as well to get lots of women to come to the auctions to be very vocal outside the auction houses and the, the, the courts and also on the streets just to, to kind of say, you know, no taxes, no votes and so forth, um, just to, to get lots of publicity. So there'll be lots of newspaper reports, or there were lots of newspaper reports as well about Sophia Dilip Singh um, and these auctions. A fascinating character. So, so just to return to India, so at the end of this 30-year struggle, when it came to 1947, how were women's lives transformed? Was there an immediate impact of getting the vote or was it a more gradual change? So um, Indian gains independence um, in August 1947, and it takes a bit of time just for a new parliament to be set up. It doesn't happen overnight. It's, it's kind of an impossible thing. A new constitution has to be written um, and new laws have to be kind of been put in place. Um, the new constitution is written in 1950, and uh, within that constitution, uh, an, a full adult suffrage kind of line is added in. So all men, all women over the age of 21 at that time, it's later reduced to 18, um, are given the vote. Which means, you know, by 1950 then, all women across India can have the vote. Um, and what we've seen in in India in particular since then is that Indian women have been very involved in elections. They have, you know, turnout for women has been high but that's not to say that um, women's role in political participation has always been great or that women's lives were immeasurably, immeasurably improved by just getting the vote in 1950. Um, just having the vote in itself didn't necessarily change many of the realities for women kind of on the ground. So, for example, there's still issues around representation of women in parliament, you know, the um, percentage compared to men, is still low. There are still issues around literacy for women. So, I mean, India, especially in recent years, has been, elections have been dogged by political intimidation. Um, and they've just, there are issues in, in the Indian subcontinent which continue today around female infanticide, which been, was an issue before 1947 and continues to be an issue today. Issues around literacy and education, which I don't know if I mentioned before, but, you know, still today um, and participation just in the workplace. The pay gap is something that is an issue for women around the world, um, including India. Mm. And what about the historical memorialization of this? How how are the Indian suffragettes remembered in India today? So Indian suffragettes aren't remembered in India at all. Um, there are examples, so I mentioned Sarojini Naidu is a prominent suffragette, Rajkumari Amrit Kaur, again a prominent suffragette, and other lots of other Indian women who are prominent suffragettes. Um, and they're remembered in India much more for their role in the nationalist movement than for their particular role in the for fighting for the female vote. Um, and this is a product of... Um, uh, I guess, uh, national myth-making in India, but also the ways in which um, women and men are just all given the vote in practically immediately after 1947. So 
there's there's very little awareness in Indian hist in history and in kind of Indian kind of public imagination today of the ways in which women were campaigning for the vote from 1917 up to 1947. There's kind of a narrative that everyone was just given the vote in 1947 when India became independent, and there's very little understanding or discussion about the kind of campaigns for the vote before that and the kind of intricacies of that the parliamentary assemblies that took place or existed in India before 1947 and what about um the way in which the role of indian women in the in the global women's suffrage movement is remembered 2018 was the 100 year anniversary of the 1918 representation of the people act in the uk which had given um some women the vote in the uk and there were lots of celebrations around that in britain 2020 was the 100 year anniversary for america so also there were lots of celebrations in the us in 2020 although there were lots of them were hampered by the global pandemic um and so in in the last few years there have been there has been much more recognition of the role of women of indian origin who were involved in the british suffrage movement um this was helped by I mentioned before the biography of Sufaidup Singh that Anita Anand wrote but also um kind of spurred by a backlash to the film Suffragette which came out in 2015 where lots of commentators pointed out that women of color were not included in that film um not just as kind of prominent members of the suffrage movement which you know there perhaps weren't any but also just in the in the kind of the kind of the crowd scenes of of that film and uh, you know i think the film industry and the television industry in the uk in particular has become in the last few years much more aware of um uh, representing the his britain historically and being much more aware of how britain has been very multiracial and multiethnic for centuries so if, for example in the 1910s when the uk suffrage movement was at its height britain was very multiracial there were people of of you know color of chinese origin african american origin caribbean origin african origin indian origin and so forth um uh you know in london in especially um so spurred by the kind of backlash to that film spurred by the biography of of sophia dilip singh and spurred by the celebrations in 2018 um the uk has paid more recognition to uh women of color in the movement or also paying more recognition to the ways in which women of color were excluded from the movement in 2018 a statue of Millicent Fawcett was unveiled in Parliament Square which is right opposite the House of Commons in Westminster in London Millicent Fawcett was a very prominent campaigner for the women's vote in the UK um it's a, so it's a, it's a large statue of Millicent Fawcett but on the plinth kind of below her feet there are um images of other men and women who were involved in the UK suffrage movement and among those images there is a portrait of Sophia Dilip Singh but also a portrait of someone called Lalita Rai who was a woman uh, from India who was also involved in the UK suffrage movement That was Samita Mukherjee her book Indian Suffragettes Female Identities and Transnational Networks was published by Oxford University Press in 2018. You can find a link in the show notes. Thanks for listening. This podcast was produced by Ben Newitt, Jack Bateman and Brittany Colley. On Friday, we'll be talking about medieval monks. <laughs> <laughs>